Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. All right. Woo! That was exciting. Uh, we good? You can hear me? Yeah, so I asked Blair, Blair, am I really going to be on the Chi Alpha podcast with a title called The Flesh Awakens? She said, yes, you are. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. Uh, so uh, first of all, Will, thank you so much. That was such an encouragement. And I love that this series is already helping people to have a lens to look at their story and to how God reveals the lies that we believe and brings so much fruit into our lives. So it's just so exciting that you got to share that. We got to be a part of that. Um, hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Uh, my name's Sarah Fletcher. I'm on staff. Uh, woo. Uh, yeah, it is my joy to be on staff. I love this job. It is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, and, but the, honestly, the main reason I love it is because this has become the way that, for me, I get to serve God. Uh, that, that's what I get to put my hands to, that I get to serve students, that I get to preach out of the truth of the gospel that I get to encourage, I get to uh, call to righteousness, I get to be in relationship with students. And in so many ways, it is also just the burnt offering of my time and my attention to God, that this is a way that he has allowed me to serve him. And it is such a joy. That is always the first reason that I do my job. There's a second reason that I do my job, and that's that I love Pete Bulette. Uh, <laughs> Um, first of all, and at least that, that his sermons led to me becoming a Christian, uh, that his training of me has helped me to be a better shepherd, and that your friendship has helped me to be a better person. So I'm very thankful for you, Pete. And that's why it's difficult for me to come up here and share a time when Pete, who has a wonderful vision for UVA, had a terrible vision. Worst idea you ever had. Uh, hardest thing I've ever experienced in Chi Alpha. I love you, Pete, but I've got to tell the truth because he told me to last week. And uh, okay, I want to I paint the scene a little bit. I'm so sorry, Pete. August 2009. <sighs> I was a second year. It was a week before first-year students would move in. I had been a Christian for 11 months, and I was preparing to lead a small group, which means that I had very little wisdom, but a lot of zeal. And uh, I was at our leadership retreat at a camp called Watermarks Camp, and because of this zeal, I was ready to throw myself into anything that Chi Alpha had for me, anything that the Lord had for me. And that is why I was there in pain, in agony, as we competed in a team-building four-way tug-of-war. What is four-way tug-of-war? It is tug-of-war, but with two ropes tied in the middle, and you have four teams, and you're all pulling. It looks a little bit like this, and it is from the enemy. Uh, so, yeah, this team-building game, it felt like we had been in stalemate for hours. It might have been hours. It felt like hours. Because what would happen is you would be pulling and you would be pulling. And this was like a real rope. This wasn't like a, like this was a rope. And you would get, you know, maybe your team would get like one foot of ground. And then all the other teams would realize, and in a moment of unintentional collaboration, they would kind of pull back and you would lose your ground. You'd lose another foot and another team would take it. But then everybody else would pull back. And we were basically in this static square for what felt like hours and was probably four and a half minutes, but it was the worst four and a half minutes of my life. Um, and finally, here we were, all tugging, doing our best. It was not working, and 
Staff finally said, we should probably stop this. And what was a scene of war quickly became a field hospital because we had raw hands, there was blisters, there was blood we had been trying so hard. And if you don't believe me, uh, just to, to prove it, Pete, if you don't remember, I have a Facebook post. <laughs> Those two likes can show you that other people really shared my opinion. But um, Pete, you remember? Yeah, it was terrible. Worst idea ever, and thankfully redeemed because it is a wonderful, wonderful metaphor for our series today. As we continue in the resistance, talking about the three enemies of the soul, the devil, the flesh, and the world. It is like you are there, you can see Jesus, you are striving for that goal, you are pulling towards it, and these three other ropes are just tugging you back, and it feels like every single foot of ground you get, they just collaborate to pull you back to where you started. And you can see that line of looking like Jesus, you can see that line of being fully in the kingdom with my heart, and I just can't get there. And some days you just want to sit down and look at the blisters in your hands. (sighs) Doesn't it just feel like that sometimes? So to be clear, this series is based on the book Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Phenomenal book. But the concept of the three enemies of the soul is actually practically as old as the church and very, very rooted in scripture. Pete spoke last week, um, as we heard wonderfully, on the devil and how he's the father of lies. That through these lies, he seeks to deceive people and lead them to destruction by planting lies of either who God is, who we are, or what the nature of the good life is. Today, I am going to speak on the flesh. I wasn't sure if I wanted the devil or the flesh more. They both sound really, really hard, but here we are. So to start us off in some scripture... 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh, which war against your soul. We, our souls, are in a war against the flesh. That's scriptural. And yet, If you know me, you know I'm a lover of words. I love poetry. I love all things words. I love metaphors. I love similes. I think words are powerful. I think they're one of the best gifts God has given us. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus is the word who took on flesh. I think that it is vital that we have words to communicate. And yet when we communicate, if we don't define things the same way, we will miss each other, right? Anybody training in like ESL or English, you're like, English is so hard to teach because there's so many words that mean the exact same thing, right? Like homonyms or what's the other word? Um, Sure. Yeah. All those words, you know? And the thing is, that's true in every language, right? That there are words that have multiple layers of meaning. Before we jump in today, I want to make one thing very, very clear, and that is how I am defining the flesh. So it comes from the Greek word sarx. Uh, comes up throughout the New Testament, and it's frequently used to refer to two things. It has two primary definitions. The first one is the one that probably many of you are thinking of. It means flesh. It means body, my body, your body. Occasionally used to talk about humanity, all of us embodied humans. So just kind of the blunt meaning of the word flesh. That is not the meaning that I am talking about today. 
And actually, if you have this meeting in mind, you are going to completely misunderstand me and probably walk out in a worse place than you were already. So don't do that, right? Because God made us with bodies. And when he made us with bodies, he said it was very good. And Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, he had a body. And then he died and he was resurrected. And you know what he had when he was resurrected? (laughs) A body. And we... At the end of times, when there's a new heavens, new earth, we're not going to be spirits floating in a cloud playing a metaphorical harp. We are going to have bodies. Bodies? Come on! I love it when Pete says that. It's so Pentecostal. All right. (laughs) Come on! Bodies are good, right? And if you think I'm saying bodies are bad, don't. What do I mean by flesh? The second word, the one being referred to in 1 Peter that we read, as well as many other verses, refers to not our physical bodies, but rather this concept of what you might call our fallen natures. Uh, It could be translated at times in your Bible as sinful passions, corrupt desires. Uh, You could call it the center of human pride. Maybe the part of you that goes, I want what I want and I want it right now. That part of us. When I say flesh, that is what I mean. This part of us that's all about me, 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 what I want right now. That's what matters. And it is in a war against our souls. And it's familiar, right? And it's a terrible war because it's a war that you're fighting with yourself. I want to be like Christ. I want to do whatever I want. I want to have a rich devotional life that pours into me. I want to scroll Instagram at 12 p.m. and then hit my snooze before I go to class as many times as I can. Yes? Nod? Yes? Yes. Yeah, you too. Great. How many of you are morning people? Blessed and highly favored. I don't know. One day the Lord shall bring me into this beautiful kingdom. Um, I want a body that is healthy and well. I want to steward my body, and I want three tacos from Torchies and the queso. This is a very, very relevant thing that I want you to understand. Your most noble desires are not always your strongest. Come on. I'm going to see how many come-ons I can get from Pete. Um, now he's going to pull back. It's okay. Don't, don't feed my pride, Pete. A lot of you are in this honest battle, right? We're all in this honest battle, that we have noble desires and we have less noble desires. And sometimes these ones are louder and they're in competition. And we're pulling, we're trying to get to that finish line of looking like Jesus. But man, do the ropes pull in the other direction. And if you are in this battle, if you are at all like me, you have realized something that I have realized, which is both terrible and terrifying, which is that willpower is not enough. Right? It's just not enough. You know it's not enough because it fails you all the time. It fails you at lunch when you were planning to finally confess to your friend. You had talked yourself up into it. You were ready to go and you got there and you just talked about your days. Your willpower fails you in the morning when you choose to snooze again because you didn't manage your sleep well and you just can't do it. Your willpower isn't enough 
as you lay in bed at night with your phone and the link that you know you shouldn't click. You know you shouldn't click it, but you just can't stop. You don't have enough power. You want to do better. You do. You think, I love Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to change. And you're trying. You're trying. But it's like you are constantly just white knuckling it. You're doing your hardest and you're just so tired. Or maybe you're in this place. Maybe, maybe you're so tired that you've practically given up and you've just hidden it in the dark, shamed, wondering if you should even be in this room because you do belong. Do you belong with a group of people who are pursuing Jesus? Or do you just feel like you failed? Has anybody been there? I've been there. Is anybody there right now? You don't even have to be a Christian to know this feeling. I know because I felt it before I was a Christian. This desire to be someone good, someone that loved, someone that had powerful and beautiful consequence in the world, and yet my flesh just wanted things that were so the opposite of that. We all know it. How do you fight that? The beautiful thing is God has given us an answer. He's given us an answer in the, wor- in the word. For though we do not... Or For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. How do we wage war against our flesh, against our sarks? We're going to spend some time in Galatians 5. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. If you want a Bible, we have Bibles in the back on the little table um, that are free for you. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give one to you because we believe that that is the word. It is true and it is powerful. Amen? Amen! Oh, I love it! Great. Galatians 5, we're going to be starting in verse 13. You were called to be free. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't let you get there. You're still turning. My bad. You good? You good? Okay, I got a few thumbs. Yep. Great. Great, great, great. Wonderful. Okay. You were called to be free by Jesus, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. It's interesting. Paul is setting up love as the antithesis to sarks, to flesh, which makes sense, right? That love honors a woman by committing to her in marriage as equals, and yet the flesh devours her through pornography as an inhuman object of self-gratification. Love gives charitably from its finances, but the flesh bites at the call to be generous, saying, it's mine, even though it's never experienced a day of hunger. Love confronts a brother who has sinned because we desire his wholeness and his health, but the flesh devours, says, well, he may be upset if I confront him, and then I would lose the pleasure of his, his friendship. I, my, it's the flesh, and it is the antithesis of love. The wisdom of the church, historically and now, is that our loves, of which we have many, our desires, should be rightly ordered that God would be first and all other things would follow. It's not that loving your alone time is bad, but if you love your alone time more than perhaps comforting a friend or serving a neighbor, perhaps your loves are ordered wrong. 
And when our loves are ordered wrong, then comes sin. And when comes sin, then comes destruction. And that we as Christians are to cultivate our loves in such a way, not that destroys our desires, but that it would serve our deepest desire, which is to be like Christ. Can I tell you that's the exact opposite of our culture right now? Like just churn it completely over because we are now indoctrinated to believe that the self and its desires are holy, right? That is the new morality is to do whatever your flesh wants when it wants it. And to suppress the desires of the flesh is to be against. It is to be, um, well, let's use an example. Okay. Um, I didn't mean to make these all sexual purity. It's just an easier one. But sexual purity um, in the church, it is seen as the self-mastery of submitting a good desire to sex to the greater desire of sanctity of marriage, to the greatest desire of honoring God as our king, right? And yet our culture flips that around. And now sexual purity is seen as oppression if it's coming from outside of you and repression if it's coming from inside of you. It is no longer self-mastery, it's a sin. And any reasoning against it is considered intolerant or dangerous. That is the world we live in. It makes me think of Proverbs 30:20 when it says, "This is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, "I've done nothing wrong." The wiping of the mouth symbolic of desire and sating it at the expense of her marriage, her husband, her holiness, her lover's holiness to just do whatever the heck we want and have the audacity to say, "I haven't done anything wrong." As carnage lays around her. That is the caricature of the end of Sarks. That is Sarks lived out to its fullest. That we would have no power to say no to our sin, and in fact, we would enjoy it. There would be nothing in us that finds it wrong. How do we not become this caricature of a woman? How do we not become this embodiment of flesh, of Sarks? Paul's answer is, to continue in Galatians, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. We said, yes, we know. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Walk by the spirit, not by willpower, because that is to wage war as the world does. That is flesh against flesh. My power against flesh's power, against the world's power. And Galatians continues, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And doesn't that sound like everything happening in the world right now? It sounds like every movie on Netflix I've seen in the last two months, I should really get off Netflix. I keep telling myself that. It makes me think of every Twitter feed it makes me think of every news cycle. Honestly, it makes me think of summer camp. Did anybody go to summer camp and every single girl's cabin has a Ouija board? I'm like, what the, what, why? Why do we do that? Did you guys not have that? Because that happened at every single summer camp I went to. I'm like, why is witchcraft just here? I'm sorry, that one wasn't in my notes. I thought it when I was getting up here and it's just, I don't know. Um, back on track. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. No, as followers of Christ, we have something the world does not have in this battle with the flesh. We have something different, something the world does not have. The Christian life is one that is lived by spirit power, not by willpower. Right? Spirit power, not by willpower. But Sarah, what does that mean? It's actually simpler than you think. And there's even a hint in what we read, the fruit of the spirit. There is an agricultural metaphor to be found. I love words. Paul continues it in the next chapter. You don't have to turn, but you can. It's probably just one page away. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Can I pause there really quick? Do you see it doesn't say from God will reap destruction? It says from the flesh will reap destruction. Sin has natural consequences in itself. When we live out sin, we bring destruction into our own lives. Have you ever played out a sin and then just seen the destruction happen? That, had, that didn't have to do with God. That's just the reality of the world. Anyway, that's an aside. That wasn't in my notes either. Um, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Sow a seed. It's small. And you don't get a seed back, you get a plant. And that plant has many seeds. And those seeds fall to the ground and then you have more plants and more. It's exponential. Don't expect that a seed won't lead to anything and pay mind to the type of seed. My brother-in-law is a gardener. He has a green thumb, biggest green thumb you've ever seen, not his actual thumb, but his green thumb. Lots of plants grow. He and my sister were living with my mom for a while, and she's got this beautiful rose garden. Uh, as a kid, my sister and I were responsible for going and picking off all the Japanese beetles from the roses. It was like one of our jobs. I hated it because you could feel their little legs. Oh. But my mom loves her roses. Um, and my brother-in-law had the thought, you know what, there's a little patch on the side. I'm going to plant some mint. I've been wanting some more plants. To Are there any gardeners in here who heard me say mint? And they're like, oh no, I know what's coming. Yeah? Yeah. It's bad. Um, he planted it. I'm not, a, I'm not a gardener. I don't know when he planted it. But by the time things grew, that mint was taking over the garden. It was sapping up the nutrients. It was filling in all the little spaces. It was all over the place. That's just what mint does. I actually looked it up on a whole bunch of forums and, forums and like, people posting about mint. Because I was looking for something that I could put on a picture. There was nothing good enough, but there was one that was like, mint is a serious problem, Sharon. And I was like, yeah, Sharon knows. Um, <laughs> it is a serious problem. We were drinking mint tea for months. And not just mint tea. We dried that mint. We made mint pesto. We made mint jelly. We made mint salad. We made mint everything. And there was still just more. <laughs> The law of sowing and reaping in the kingdom is like this. In the kingdom, an act is like a seed. Acts become habits. Habits 
become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. You plant five mint seeds in time, you have 500. Every time we sow to the flesh, we plant something in the soil of our heart that takes root and it grows and it eventually yields a character. Every time we plant into the spirit, we plant something in the soil of our heart that begins to take root and grows and yields a character. The character becomes our destiny, a destiny of someone who joyfully embraces submission to God or the destiny of someone who submits to nothing but their sin. The reality is the things that we do, they lead to who we are. The reality it is, to put it simply, if you plant mint now, you will become a person who craves mint tea. You couldn't care less about the roses. So pay attention to what you plant. And to mix our metaphors here, some of you are desperately trying to uproot these seeds in your life that you know we're not good. You know that they're evil. You know they're of the flesh. You're tugging on the rope. You're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting. But every seed that slips through, every inch of ground loss seems to multiply until at the end of the day, you're just on your knees in a field of habitual sin and you feel like you have nothing left. This is when the battle is left to willpower. Flesh versus flesh. And there is some good in it. We should strive to take those seeds out. But if sin management is all you have, then you are empty. Because even if you manage to keep every bad seed from falling to the soil, it's still just dirt. You need something good to grow. Seeds that plant life instead and this was the state of humanity when Jesus entered. He saw the corruption of our hearts that none were sinless. No, not one. And then in John 12, 23 through 25, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about the cross. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies it produces many seeds. We didn't have what we needed. Every single thing we were planting was out of our flesh. Think of the Pharisees. They did everything right. They tithed to even a tenth of their spices, but the seeds that they were planting were seeds of pride, seeds that loved a system that put them on top, seeds that were uh, seeds of competition, that it wasn't sown out of a love for God. We needed life brought into our hearts, so life took on flesh. Life lived perfectly. Life then died so that we might have access to this grain of wheat, this one thing that was good to sow. And then this master gardener of our souls offered this seed of life in his name and said, take it. I paid for it. You can have it. It's yours. I paid it for you. And not just that, but Jesus then sent his spirit to teach us how to grow it, how to tend to the garden of our souls. I might be going too far into the metaphor, but stick with me. It's beautiful. So how 
do we learn to walk by the Spirit? If we've been offered the seed of life that can bear a harvest in our soul and the Spirit is sent to teach us how to grow it in our lives, how do we walk by the Spirit? How do we learn? It's spiritual disciplines. Are you surprised it was the answer last time? There's so much good in the spiritual disciplines And it's funny, you probably thought your major or who you marry or your job was the most important decision you can make, but the reality is the small habits that you choose are the things that will bear a harvest in your soul. Those are the things that shape who you're going to be in 20 years. Is what you do when you wake up. Is what you do when you fall asleep. Is how you treat the cashier. Is how you pray for your friends. And these habits that we cultivate with the Holy Spirit, help us by uprooting the seeds of the flesh and planting the seeds of the Spirit. It's actually this Christian term. We're not going to go way too deep into it, but so you can connect with ancient Christian literature of mortification, which is dying to sin in the language of Galatians 5, crucifying our flesh, and vivification, living to God, walking in the Spirit. The disciplines are how we partner with the Holy Spirit so that he can help us uproot the seeds of the flesh and plant the seeds of life. And the way that happens is like reading scripture so as not to be deceived by lies as we go about tending the garden of our souls. Or daily prayer to help heavenly thoughts to be what's planted in our minds instead of thoughts of the flesh. Corporate confession so that we can expose and uproot our sin and seeds of community and grace can be planted instead. Worship so that love for him grows in our hearts. And again, to be clear, we don't do these disciplines out of competition. We don't do these disciplines out of performance or pride, but as an act of humility, because they're an invitation for the Holy Spirit to enter that and plant something in your heart. For the Holy Spirit to help you to be like him. And that's what makes it an act, not just of willpower, but of spirit power. Because it's saying, I know that I need you, Holy Spirit, to do something. I'm going to create the time, but will you plant something in my life that will grow into life, into goodness, into righteousness, into joy, peace, patience, self-control? For example, the way it might look different than willpower is when I read scripture, I always start with prayer, inviting the Holy Spirit to come and say, let this not be based out of my wisdom or what I can understand, but if there's something you want to speak, something that you want to put in me, would you do it, Holy Spirit? Because I know that I can read lots of things and comprehend various things, but those things are still coming out of my mind, and actually I need heavenly things to be placed inside of me. Or prayer. When I pray, I try to build in times of silence where I allow the Lord to speak, because maybe he wants to point me to things I wouldn't naturally know to pray about. But those are the things where he wants his spirit to enter and cleanse me, or inspire me, or challenge me, convict me. What do these spiritual disciplines look like? Not when we just do them because we know we're supposed to do them and we're trying to be good, but because we want the Holy Spirit to move in them. Doesn't that just shift the frame just slightly from where we do it out of our flesh, where we do it out of our willpower, where we're trying, but it's just, it's not working into that place where the Holy Spirit can bring something radically new. I want to talk about one spiritual discipline very briefly that is one that uh, I think the world particularly doesn't understand because it doesn't make sense unless you're in partnership with the Spirit, and that's fasting. It's something we're doing as a fellowship right now. Um, As staff, we're fasting uh, during the month of February. We're inviting uh, students to join in as 
well if they want to. But fasting is intentionally going without food for a period of time in order to increase your reliance on God rather than your flesh. It's highly biblical. Jesus did it. And it helps turn your body into an ally against your flesh because it's training you to say no to your hunger and to say yes to God. And so it's training your body not to give in to what it wants the moment it wants it. So fasting isn't about food. When it is about food, that's when we need to talk about it and make sure that this isn't out of your flesh, that this isn't about a relationship to food. It's about a relationship to God. It's about helping your body to learn to say yes to spiritual desires before it says yes to fleshly desires. Um, Last week, Pete talked about Jesus when he encountered the devil in the desert and the the devil tempted him, and Jesus used scripture to push back, right? Into, into, it was barely even a pushing. It was like not a fight at all. Jesus was like, that's just not true. I don't need that. You're wrong. I love it. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. And what happened before that is that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert. And then the enemy came and tried to offer lies. And Jesus is like, scripture, nope. Isn't that funny? And some people can look at that and say, well, it's because he wanted to show that even at his weakest, he was pure. The answer is that's actually radically wrong. It's when he was at his strongest because he had trained his body. He had spent 40 days saying, let's say yes to God, not our flesh. Let's say yes to God, not to turning stone into bread. Let's say yes to God. Fasting helps us to be spiritually strong. There are wise ways to do it. And if you want to know about it, talk to a staff person or your core group leader. But fasting is a beautiful skill to help your body to learn to embrace God first. Some of you have never fasted before. Maybe you're excellent at reading scripture, you have a prayer life, you worship regularly, and you're still struggling in your fight against sin. Maybe you're not. If not, wow. Um, Tell me your secret. I want to be like you, please. But if you are still struggling with sin, can I encourage you? Consider fasting. It is a spiritual discipline of the church that the saints have used for centuries, and it's been really, really helpful. Um, And to kind of pull us into a close, when we partner with the Spirit in this, when we invite him into our spiritual disciplines, when we say this isn't about what I am doing, it's just me clearing the soil and you, Holy Spirit, planting the seeds. You know what happens? We're going to look at that first verse from Galatians again. You are called to be free by Jesus, so do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I want to come back to the power of words and definitions. Freedom. If you don't understand what that word means, you're going to to miss on the meaning of this passage. In our culture, we don't think about freedom from. We think about freedom to. Freedom to lie, freedom to cheat, freedom to steal, freedom to sleep with my girlfriend, freedom to sleep with whatever, freedom to, to. That is what our culture calls freedom. But the reality is that in the history of the church, that is not how freedom is defined. Freedom is defined from. Freedom, in this case, from the flesh, from our slavery to our own sin and desires. When we have to do what is sinful, you just can't say no to yourself. That is where so many of us are. That is where I was. That where you just, mm, you're enslaved to your sin. And true freedom is when 
We are free to choose to love. To say no to our desires and to say, I want to be like God. To love like he did, even if it means that I have to die to myself. Free to face vengeance, gossip, competition, hatred, self-advancement, all the things that my soul craves for, my flesh craves for, and to just say no. I want to choose something better. That is the freedom that the Holy Spirit offers. And some of you right now truly are feeling enslaved to your sin. And can I tell you, you don't have to stay there. I am radically different than I was at 21. It's just so different how I experience my desires and how I can submit them to the greatest desire to be like Christ. And that's just at 31, but ask me at 51, ask me at 71, ask me at 91, that this is something that actually changes. And right now you feel trapped, but you don't have to be. The gift of Christ is freedom, not to do whatever we want, but to be able to do the opposite of what we want, because what we want is so bad sometimes. The freedom to say, I choose to love to do the antithesis of what my flesh desires, to choose death over life because I love someone so much. Band, you can come up. Um, Don't we want that? Don't you crave that freedom in your life when you face that temptation in the night and you just want to be able to say no and it just feels like you can't? Can I encourage you? Keep going. There can be freedom. There can be the ability to say no. The Spirit can plant that in your life and it will grow a harvest. It's like fighting in this four-way tug of war, but actually, guess what? You're four years old and your father just came over and grabbed the rope and you're going to be just fine. Just keep your hands on it. Keep moving because he has given you everything that you need. He has his power, not your power, to complete the job that you can walk to the finish line with him. And so if you're in this room tonight and you're not a Christian, but you understand this, you do, you've felt it, that battle with yourself, you want to be a certain type of person and you just can't seem to get there, Christ came for you. Because the reality is you are enslaved to your sin and your desires. And it is going to shape you to become the sort of person where you just want those things eventually. And yet Christ came died and was resurrected so that he could offer you this chance at new life. And then he sent his spirit to help you walk it out. So you don't even have to do that in your own power. If you are interested in freedom, I encourage you to talk to your core group leader or whoever came with you or staff person at a table about that. We would love to talk to you about the person of Jesus. And if you are a Christian in the room tonight, actually, you guys can stand. Um, If you are struggling with sin, I want to tell you, put down your willpower tonight. Put down your striving. Take a look at your life and just consider, where do I want to invite the Holy Spirit to move? Is there a way I can reach into the soil of my life, into the calendar of my life, and just carve out a little space for the Holy Spirit to plant something? good when there is nothing good in me. Or maybe you're already committed to spiritual disciplines. Maybe you're like, Sarah, I'm already in the fight. 
daily trying to uproot those seeds, but maybe you're just struggling to believe that you really can one day look like Jesus. Abandon that shame and trust the process. A seed doesn't grow overnight, but it does grow. And the harvest will come. He has offered us freedom. We just need to step into it. So to all of us, do not grow weary in doing good. Plant good seeds, not habits of the flesh, but habits that invite the Spirit into your life. For in due time, you will reap harvest. We can be free and have this life that Jesus bought for us on the cross. So let's worship him for what he's done and um, that he did it for all of us and that we're in this together and we don't have to do it on our own. Amen. We thank you for the work that you have done, that you accomplished on the cross. Jesus, that you had to die for it to be done, but you also stepped into new life. And God, that you offered it to us. That when we were sinners, when we were stuck, enslaved to our sin, you made a way where there there was none. Just none, God. And you loved us enough while we were sinners to do it. God, teach us to love like that. Teach us to be those people on grounds. Teach us to be those people in the dorms. Teach us to be those people in our classes, in our homes, and in the nations. God, may we be people of love who say no to the things of the flesh so that we can love like you have loved us. And teach us to, by your Spirit, Spirit, fill us. We need you. We cry. Enter every moment of our days. Enter our times of reading. Enter our times of praying. Enter our worship. But enter as we walk to class. Spirit, that you would show us the holiness in every moment. That Jesus can move in it. And he can draw us to himself into the life that he offers. Jesus, may none of us walk out of this room ashamed May none of us walk out believing in the chains in us, but rather trusting in the process that you are walking us from freedom to freedom and grace, God, to new life, to your kingdom that you have bought, not by our power, but by yours. Teach us to be your people and teach us to love. What a gift it is to worship you and to be your people. We love you. And Jesus, in your name, we pray. Amen. Well, for the benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep keep you. May he turn his countenance towards you. May he, wow, I got confused, shine upon you. And may he give you peace that there is freedom to be had and that he is good. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have good nights, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.